There's no need to imagine, Senator. He straight up said it, typed it out, and hit truth. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's outstanding panel returning to the roundup is the one and only highly sought after crisis communications consultant, political strategist, writer, and MSNBC political analyst, our good friend, Susan Del Percio. Susan, hello. Thanks for being back. It's always good to see you. Thanks. It's so great to be here. I can't believe it's December. Also returning to the roundup from the great state of Georgia is Theron Johnson. Theron is a political strategist and consultant who has worked for Atlanta Mayor's Keisha Lance Bottom and Kasim Reed, the late Congressman John Lewis, and of course, President Barack Obama. Theron, welcome back. It's great to see you. I, I understand you've gotten a little bit of sleep since the election. Yes, it was some much deserved sleep and I slept well because Georgia did the right thing and sent Senator Warnock back to Washington, D.C. So we're pretty happy. On this week's roundup, the Georgia Senate runoff, Reverend Raphael Warnock's victory and what lessons are available for both Republicans and Democrats. We'll also discuss the very bad week Donald Trump is having. Again, he's been having a lot of those. Uh, His business being convicted of tax fraud, his call to terminate the Constitution. Yes, terminate the Constitution. And how the continued jockeying for position will impact the Speaker of the House race in January. Then we'll discuss Mark Leibovich's piece in The Atlantic about whether Ron DeSantis can overcome his robotic quality and challenge Trump for the nomination. Finally, in our Politicology Plus segment, just for subscribers, we're going to discuss Time Magazine naming Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky as the 2022 Person of the Year. If you want to pull up a chair and join us for that discussion, a Politicology Plus subscription gets you the private and ad-free version of the show with additional episodes that aren't on the public version. There are two ways to get it. Option one is to sign up directly with us at politicology.com slash plus, and that gets you a link that you can use to listen in any major podcast player. Option two, if you only listen in the Apple Podcasts app, you can navigate to the Politicology show there and tap the button that says try free. We'll dig in right after this. All right. On Tuesday, Georgia Senator Raphael Warnock won another runoff and secured a full six-year term this time in the Senate. Warnock has been leading Warnock has been the leading vote getter in the last four Georgia Senate elections, 2020 general, 2021 runoff, 2022 general, 2022 runoff. About 3.5 million people voted in the Georgia runoff, down from nearly 4 million in November, but Warnock had more than doubled his lead over Republican Herschel Walker. Walker led by 95,000 votes as of Wednesday compared to 37,000 in the general. Uh, Theron, why don't you walk us through what both candidates needed to do to get to the 50% mark and what ultimately allowed Warnock to execute? Well, there are a lot of things to unpack um, about this general election race that ultimately led to a four-week runoff uh, in Georgia. And so I was just telling Susan, the last time we were together on this podcast and we had a conversation was when Georgia was about to enter a special election uh, for Senator Warnock uh, campaign. So there's, there's a lot of things to take away, and I'll do my best to really unpack here. But the first thing you got to really look at, and Ron, you've heard me say this before, 
is that this is the first time in U.S. history that we've had an African-American male as a Republican nominee uh, and an African-American male who's an incumbent um, U.S. senator. And so just that alone was something that Georgia voters had not been used to. So we had to really just unpack the differences between these two gentlemen who were running for office, Herschel Walker being a former Heisman Trophy winner, probably the most popular, most revered athlete from the University of Georgia, went on to play in the NFL and, 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 and create several businesses. And he was also a dear friend of Donald Trump, which he owned and never shot away from it, versus Raphael Warnock, community organizer, pastor of the, one of the most recognized African-American churches in the world, um, you know, had never run for office before, but had done a lot around healthcare and, and and voter mobilization and voter registration, and 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 really had sort of surprised a lot of people when he upset then uh, incumbent U.S. Senator Kelly Leffler. But the first thing that I really take away from this race is that in a very hyper partisan climate, the candidate still matters. And Warnock showed us in Georgia that a moderate Democrat can actually win. Um, you can be a bipartisan Democrat in the U.S. Senate, turn out your base, but also not in a shameful way, talk about how you've worked across the aisle to get things done for Georgia. But I think the other thing that really was a key takeaway is that the majority of voters recognize that Herschel Walker um, really recognized him for who, what he what he is. Um, he's a person that um, was not your traditional candidate, um, had a lot of falsehoods, had a Pass of domestic violence um, with his ex-wives and, and had some issues that his kids even talked about. But even so, he still received roughly 1.7 million votes in this runoff in Georgia. And the last big takeaway was is that Senator Warnock, because he had actually been in a runoff before, a highly contested runoff in January 5th of 2021, his team was ready instantly to get to work. If you look at the campaign the last four weeks, particularly the last three weeks of the four-week runoff, Herschel Walker spent the majority of his time actually dodging the media, being very, very scripted when he did talk to the media versus Senator Warnock said, hey, I'm going to have a base plus plus election strategy. I'm going to go out and get my base back out, but I'm also going to talk to these disaffected Republicans. I'm going to talk to voters in rural areas. I'm going to spend time on college campuses to make sure that young people actually come back out to vote. And so this was a very well-planned election runoff strategy by the Warnock team. And I think that Senator Warnock, while he did have a very inspirational, positive message about the future, he was a little bit more poignant in his attacks on Walker, um, calling him unfit for office and really going a little bit more on a contrast message between them. So ultimately, we're happy with the results. Thank you, Georgia voters, for doing the right thing. And I'm really Looking forward for Senator Warnock's next six years in the U.S. Senate. Susan, we've spent a lot of time uh, since the November elections talking about the importance of candidate quality, especially since Mitch McConnell used that phrase. Walker has probably been the poster child for bad Republican candidates in a midterm cycle flooded with bad Republican candidates from 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 lies about working in law enforcement to lying to his own campaign about the children he had concealed from them, uh, to allegations he pressured multiple former girlfriends to have abortions. And those are just the scandals that don't have anything to do with his theories on whether it's preferable to be a vampire or a werewolf. Uh, <laughs> after after Walker's defeat on Tuesday, uh, Rick Scott, 
uh, Florida Senator Rick Scott, who's the outgoing chair, everyone will know, of the of the National Republican Senatorial Committee, uh, defended the quality of the candidates. He said, quote, I thought we could win. I thought we could win. I thought we were going to get the majority. All of this has been pretty disappointing, Scott told The Hill. Quote, we had good quality candidates. We had a lot of candidates who went through really tough primaries. We had 21 seats up. Democrats only had 14, end quote. Uh, I'm sure that the um, that the that the rationalization continued. What lessons uh, can Democrats and Republicans both learn from the poor showing of these poor quality anti democracy candidates uh, in Georgia and in other battleground states like Pennsylvania and Arizona and Mich- Michigan? We saw. Well, I think nothing showed the contrast pu- to the public as well between the two candidates. From Walker and Warnock was as the ad that Warnock put on using Herschel Walker's own words and people responding to them saying, this is just crazy. I mean, those ads were that ad itself, I think, really was excellent. And it it also is representative of, I think, where Republicans were, at least some some moderate Republicans saying, I'm not voting for this. No, I'm not going to do it. And in the general election, there was not a turnout problem for Republicans. They showed up. They just said, I don't want Walker. Now, I would argue not enough said, I want Warnock to get the vote up. And frankly, we saw that because on the libertarian line, there was an increase of 50,000 votes from governor to Senate. And if those people didn't vote on the libertarian line, guess who we'd be seeing? We wouldn't have had to run off. But it does show you that people are paying attention. That's the flip side. Like we talk about the candidate selection, the candidate selection and all that. That's that's like the insider's game, which I love talking about. Don't get me wrong. But looking at it, the voters do have a say in this and they matter. And election deniers for secretary of state in, in Arizona, Nevada, Michigan, they pulled through because voters cared and they pay attention to the candidate. So it was it was also Republicans and Donald Trump. There's no way to have this conversation without bringing up Donald Trump, no matter how I try, because he is an anchor around the party's neck and people who are running. Imagine, this is just shocking to me, the leading not candidate for the Republican Party's nomination for president granted he's the only one, is Donald Trump. And the leading, and he was not welcome in Georgia, which for a special election, which is based on turnout. And he was not welcome because they were afraid of who he turned out. Not Democrats, but people to vote against Walker. Until they're willing to wake up the the Republican establishment, whoever they are these days, and and distance themselves, they're going to forever be carrying Trump around their neck. Yeah, Theron. I think last time you and I spoke, you 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 mentioned one of the most remarkable things that Republicans had been able to do was to keep Donald Trump out of Georgia uh, d- during that during during that election. Um, so in November, Republican Brian Kemp won re-election as governor of Georgia by a pretty wide margin, and in that same election, uh, Senator Warnock won a plurality of votes in the Senate race, and then he won the runoff this week. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, about what's driving the ticket splitting in a state like Georgia. If you really look at the numbers, and I know 
as we sort of continue to unpack what really happened, we got to wait on the Secretary of State's office to really, you know, give us the final numbers in this race. But it, it was a few things that happened, Ron. Number one, not having Governor Brian Kemp on the ballot for Herschel Walker really hurt him because many Republicans believed and Democrats believed that Herschel Walker was able to force a runoff with Senator Warnock solely because you had Brian Kemp on the ballot as well and his ground game, his ability to try to bring a multi-racial coalition of Republican voters out directly benefited Herschel Walker. So with not having Brian Kemp on the ballot this time, even though, Ron, uh, Brian Kemp, Governor Kemp spent an enormous amount of time traveling the state of Georgia with Herschel Walker. He cut, uh, I think, at least two campaign ads. I know he did a bunch of social media posts. So he takes this loss, too. And I think that the Walker campaign felt like it was better to have Governor Kemp endorsing you than the, and former President Donald Trump. The other thing that happened in this runoff is that there were these Kemp Warnock voters that we heard about, about for months in Georgia. And I didn't believe it until I actually started getting outside of Atlanta. You know, we start going into the suburbs of Atlanta. You know, Atlanta is still only a city that consists of 500,000 people. But our metro area is roughly about 7 million folks. And so when I start going up to places like Cobb County and going down to places like Spalding County and Fayette County, and I start running into these women who are saying, hey, you know what? I'm going to vote for Kemp, but I'm either going to skip the race between Warnock and Walker or I'm going to vote for Warnock. And so I said, wow, there's, there's, the, there's the pathway. The other thing that the runoff is going to reflect is, yes, not having Brian Kemp on the ballot hurt Herschel Walker, but also I think Republicans say, you know what, to, to what you just heard from, from, from Susan, is we want Trump to go away. So a Walker win would have given Donald Trump the ability to say, hey, I'm going to claim this victory. So it was, it, was a, it, was a, it was a pushback vote on Donald Trump, and it was also, you know what, Raphael Warnock is not that bad. Yeah, there are probably some things that, you know, Republicans wanted him to to vote against or vote for. But ultimately, when we looked at the character, the competency, um, the the campaigns that these two gentlemen ran, I think that those Republicans um, voted his way. And then lastly, I got to give the majority of the credit, though, to the Democratic base. The, The base turned out. And that coalition, Ron, you've heard me talk about, it fluctuates in Georgia. And it's a coalition that he built. So it was really the base turnout. It was the early votes, which Republicans, by the way, tried to strip away a day. They wanted to not have Saturday voting before the election. The war, uh, Democrats prevail, Warnock prevail. So it was really the base that delivered this this win for Warnock. Susan, you were nodding there for a minute. Well, yeah, I, it's the the ground game i mean it's what every operative political operative always wants in their their home state or you know what what areas they're interested in is development of that base and keeping them engaged year round getting them to the polls when it matters and that base i would argue and Theron's more of an expert than i am goes to stacy abrams first run for governor um that really brought it home for a lot of people to see we have to invest in, in, our, in our ground game. And that investment has paid off. And a lot of states should be looking at, at what happened in Georgia. Because to me, Georgia is not a purple state. It is meant to be a red state. It just won't vote for crazy. I mean, it was a close election. It went to a runoff. 
I can make an argument that if Herschel Walker was just a one hundredth of the candidate that Warnock was, one hundredth, he would he could have pulled this out, or if he didn't say anything, yeah, he could have potentially pulled this off. I mean, he Georgia. This was a reflection of an amazing campaign operation. Like you just can't take that away. This was not this. Yeah. It's not like winning a Democrat winning in New York. It's not shocking. Yeah. Yeah. This was a big win. Totally big win. Uh, Before we leave this segment, I just want to make a note here um, uh, because everyone, so we talked earlier about this race, about how the Senate wasn't actually on the line, control the Senate wasn't on the line. uh, And, and therefore, you know, it, it potentially wasn't as big a massive blockbuster race as it could have been. But this election win also handed Democrats an outright majority in the Senate, which is going to have the biggest impact on committees. So I just want listeners to understand, like, the consequences of this win are huge because under the power sharing agreement that has been in place over the last two years with the 50-50 Senate, uh, Democrats and Republicans have had an even number of members on in Senate committees. Uh, so, you know, for example, uh, Senate Judiciary Committee has 22 members. It goes from now with this win, 11 Democrats and 11 Republicans to 12 Democrats and 10 Republicans. So even though Democrats technically controlled the Senate, they had the tie-breaking vote, right? Now they have an outright majority, which means that these committees now flip and Democrats have majorities on these committees. So I just want to plant that flag. I'm sure we'll be coming back to that in the future, but it it is it is still extremely consequential in terms of uh, in terms of how the Senate functions. Susan? I just have to add to that, but it's worth noting the legislation that did come out of the Senate, the bipartisan legislation that has been done in the last two years. So shared government or power sharing is not the worst thing when you want to get some real meaningful legislation done because it does require people to work together. Now, it's just that it was the Senate, so you don't see the vitriol on issues like you do in the House. But these senators work together in a lot of different ways. Yes, there was still politics. And, you know, it that power sharing agreement only came to pass because Mitch McConnell didn't fight it. And like, I know we it's not about giving credit, but it, that's his job to keep government running. But it did run and there were successes. So this idea, and I may get into it a little bit later about power sharing, um, is is not the worst idea. Yeah, no, totally not the worst idea. I just want people to understand that there are downs. It, it, you know, I think a lot of people, especially if you're just paying attention to this on social media, think, oh, but okay, we already got the Senate, so it's okay. And you sort of then you tune out, right? Nationally, the national Democratic audience, anyway. But they're actually, as a result of this race, Democrats will have significantly more power, more control within the Senate as a body because of this race. And I think that fact has sort of flown to under pass, the- To pass yeah. legislation that will go nowhere because the House will fight against <laughs> it, the but House that's will great. Yeah. Yeah, and, <laughs> that's and, just great. And if I can add <laughs> one other thing that I think that resonated with the voters I spoke with in Georgia, it was two things. Yeah. Um, look, we know that the average age of the women and men who make up the U.S. Senate is 65 plus. I think it's even pushing close to 70. So you have folks that may decide to retire. You have folks who may decide for whatever reason, medical conditions, want to spend more time with family. Hey, I just don't want to do this anymore. And so building up that lead, getting to your point, Ron, and to your point, Susan, like actually was so monumental for Democrats. But also it gives us an opportunity to when Cinema and Manchin decides to not be with the party, 
you do now have this extra seat to try to make sure that if it comes down to one vote or to two votes, you have that extra U.S. senator there. And so we had to really make that plain to folks in Georgia. Like people were saying, hey, we got it. Like we shouldn't go back out anymore. And we're like, no, we, we made a committee argument that you made, um, uh, Ron. I mean, it was very effective with insiders. But also just like, hey, you know, if something happens or somebody retires or unfortunately somebody passes away, we need to have this this lead built up so we can push back on Republicans. A little wiggle room. Yeah. You, you know who did little, a great little, job little on room. that? Yeah. I thought was Barack Obama. He did. I thought, you yeah. know, you have someone come in. Not only was he just great campaigning um, for the general and then the special, but he really, I thought, made some really made a really good case and drew the right amount of attention to it. He did. And don't forget, Susan, is that while President, former my former boss, former President Barack Obama was the closer in this runoff, but also got to give props to former First Lady Michelle Obama, who played a part as well. The campaign of Warnocks was able to utilize some of the things that she did to help get women voters out for him as well. Let's talk about the orange man, shall we? <laughs> I know. I'm making For an lo- unhappy face now. <laughs> I'm making the, I don't like this. It's so, so annoying. For like the third, this is how I feel too. But, you know, whatever. He's not having a good time right now. This is like the third or fourth week in a row. It's been a bad, it's been a bad week for Donald Trump. Ron, so, I mean, he's been, been running a- for president for just over three I weeks. Know, and I he's know. had his income taxes sent to the house. He's had his business convicted of fraud. He's had oh my God. documents found. He uh, he sat with white supremacists and, and racists and, and had dinner with them. I mean, that's just three weeks. Can you imagine <laughs> what it's next three you're going to be? You know, our friend George Conway just tweeted like, uh, I will not gloat. I will not gloat. I will not gloat. Because on Tuesday, a Manhattan jury found that two Trump organization companies guilty on multiple charges of criminal tax fraud and falsifying business records as part of a 15-year-long scheme. 15-year-long scheme to defraud tax authorities by failing to report and pay taxes on compensation for top executives. Uh, The Trump Corp and Trump Payroll Corp were found guilty on all charges they faced and could face a maximum of $1.61 million in fines when they are sentenced in January. Um, it's probably worth noting that, you know, of the finance folks I've talked to, the stuff that the Trump organization has just been convicted of happens all the time and largely goes unpunished from what I understand. It's fairly routine because this is stuff like, you know, paying someone by giving them a car instead of paying them cash and reporting it. Right. And these are called perks, but everybody does it apparently. Uh, so it, it just, is common and we should know that it, yeah. it, that Trump himself was not convicted of anything, just the corporation. Right. No but family a members, lot of right. people feel this was something that opened the door that just mm, got a right. foot in the door for other things. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that would be the biggest significant uh, significance of this particular case. And it's probably watch this space. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, on Saturday, Trump doubled, tripled, quadrupled down. I've lost count on his claims of election fraud about the 2020 election. So he lost, not, you know, not, just, not, just, not, the, not the election just, we just had the one before that. Yeah, uh, he lost yeah. he he lost Georgia like 18 times already. Just so you know, between the recounts. In, in a post on his knockoff Twitter social media platform, Truth Social, Trump wrote, do you throw the presidential election results of 2020 out 
and declare a rightful winner? Or do you have a new election? A massive fraud of this type and magnitude allows for, wait for it, the termination of all rules, regulations, and articles, even those found in the Constitution. (laughs) (laughs) And after Trump's comment, Liz Cheney tweeted, Donald Trump believes we should terminate all rules, regulations, and articles, even those found in the Constitution, to overturn the 2020 election. That was his view on 1-6 and remains his view today. No honest person can deny that Trump is an enemy of the Constitution. Several other Republicans responded to Trump's truth social post. Senator Roy Blunt of Missouri said, well, I think you take an oath to the Constitution. You don't take it provisionally. And I can't imagine that a former president would make that statement. There's no need to imagine, Senator. He straight up said it, typed it out, and hit truth. Uh, Senator John Cornyn of Texas said, quote, I don't know why anybody would say something like that. Certainly not an ex-president. I think that's irresponsible. And uh, irresponsible is one of the many words, I suppose, we could use to describe the post. Newly reelected Alaska Senator Lisa Murkowski tweeted, quote, suggesting the termination of the Constitution is not only a betrayal of our oath of office, it's an affront to our republic, end quote. Utah Senator Mitt Romney said, when President Trump says he wants to suspend the Constitution, he goes from being MAGA to being rhino. Romney also said that he does not think Trump's comments will affect his chances of winning the Republican nomination in 2024. So I'm not really surprised by either of these pieces of news. Uh, We've known for, that's a really sad comment, I suppose. Uh, We've known for a while that Trump's companies were committing tax fraud and Liz Cheney's rights have been clear since January 6th. It's been clear since long before January 6th that Donald Trump is an enemy of the Constitution. But I'm more interested in the... um, and the fairly tepid responses from Republicans who've commented on Trump's statement. Now, Romney had a had a lengthier and I thought really good response. Um, and I actually thought John Kennedy threaded the needle in a similar way that Mitch McConnell has done, which is sort of a, a sterile way. What he said was, um, uh, I disagree with the president. The Constitution can be amended. The Constitution can be interpreted. But the Constitution cannot be suspended. And that was it. And I just thought like, you know, after the midterms, there was a lot of uh, speculation, right? That since Trump was a drag on races, the Republicans might have a little more courage to stand up to him. We saw some of that after the midterm. So Susan, I'm just wondering how have you seen that play out in this instance or did it not? uh, Are are, are people sort of uh, not feeling as courageous as they were before? I mean, what do you, what do you make of the of the way people responded to this absolutely insane thing that he said. And they, they like, they all know that it's insane. It's important to look at the timing of all of this because just a few days before it came out that Donald Trump sat down and had dinner with Nick Fuentes and yay, um, known racist and white supremacist to known to many. Um, he, he didn't try and deflect from that at all. And the Republican Party, the leaders, quote leaders, uh, basically said nothing. They said racism is bad. I mean, that's really all they said. They did not they did not go after Trump specifically for it. It seems like the Constitution plus that was enough to start using, you know, Trump's name. So that is that's becoming more significant. I also wonder how much of a a caged animal Donald Trump has been now that he wasn't allowed in Georgia, now that he's seen the attacks on him, now that he's had his business uh, fraud convicted conviction, excuse me, his business was convicted of fraud. 
and his tax returns are in the hands of the House. I, I, it's only going to spin out worse. And the question I've been asking, as you know, since 2020 is, do Trump's followers need Trump as much as Trump needs those followers? And I will argue now, I did then and I do now more, is that those followers are going to get ready to split for somebody else because they're just tired. They don't want to have this nonsense. Even the faithful Trump Trumpsters, the people who people that Donald Trump is trying to appease, the racist, the white supremacist, because he thinks that that, that sliver can help him win a primary. They're going to turn too. And they're going to turn to somebody else. It may not even be an elected official. But I, I think we're seeing some, some semblance of, of Trump getting very nervous. It doesn't mean I don't think, you know, it's Lucy with the football. He could come back. We've seen it a million times. We saw it in 2016. But, um, you know, I'll, I'll keep it to my, what I've said before. I don't think we'll see Donald Trump on a ballot for the, in the presidential election. Theron, I'd love to know what you think about this. Uh, you know, from the, from the Democratic side, you got to be thinking that, well, shoot, like we just talked about how important Donald Trump was to winning the Senate race in Georgia. What happens if if you know Trump's if Trump's people start to start to peel off and they start to go for somebody else, not because they disagree with him on any of his insanity, but just because they want a a better you know they want it all in a better package, right? Um, do you think that impacts the uh, the ability of Democrats to win as uh, as 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 we have been seeing, um, given how much uh, you know how how it was part of the strategy to run against Trump, um, and, and just how toxic he has been, how much a weight he has been around every Republican candidate, especially that he's been associated with? What do Democrats do with that? Well, again, we I guess we got to you know really sort of continue to pay very close attention to what's going on, on the Republican side. But more importantly, before we start worrying about what Donald Trump is doing and his followers and whether or not they're going to follow him, the conversations I've been having um, are really you know uncomfortable conversations. But we're like, hey, how do we strengthen our party as is? Because we saw in Georgia, if you expand a party, if you not only just be relegated to only focusing on your base, but you actually make a compelling, persuasive argument of why you're better than your Republican opponent, it actually works. Now, the one thing that is still uh, up for grabs is that not having Donald Trump on the ballot in Georgia and not having him physically or electronically involved in Georgia definitely did not turn out the people that we would have needed to turn out because one of the things that he did for us in 2020 and 2021 for all Democrats is that every time he would say something or tweet something or do anything, it would definitely create this uh, huge amount of enthusiasm for our base. But, you know, the, the thing that's really interesting is that the unwillingness of so many elected Republicans to fully rebu rebuke Trump makes it truly sad week uh, for our country. And it's a truly sad moment for us because if you just look at how he's really tried to relaunch his campaign. I mean, this is the weakest he's been in six years. I mean, his empire is crumbling. He's got all these things that many people have said about him as far as his organizations that he's affiliated with. And he's really been backed into a corner. And only people who can get him out are the grassroots supporters who elevated him in the first place. And so to Susan's point, you know, they're like, all right, this guy was our entree. 
You know, he 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 talked about issues that we cared about. Um, he brought a very dark side uh, out in front and open that around our country as far as when you start talking about the issues of race and the working class Americans uh, all across the country. And he utilized this manufactured, but also systemic um, sort of hate from some voters, not all of the Clintons, particularly Hillary Clinton. And he just only amplified it with lies and things that are like, as the days go on, we figure out like, man, this, this whole thing was concocted. And so look, Democrats, we've got to have a Trump on the ballot strategy. And then we got to have a Trump not on the ballot strategy, but still very involved in Republican um, politics. And then the last strategy is a Trump not on the ballot strategy and he's fully out of Republican politics. Now, the third option, I think, is not going to happen. I believe yeah, that. Not for a yeah, while. Yeah, not for a while. But yeah. number options A and B are what we're talking about nationally. And we're talking about, you know, how it will, will play into the candidates that will continue to support him. But, you know, the fact that Mitch McConnell just was scared after really kind of going there initially with his comments and when pressed to talk about how. You know, the, pre- the former president of the United States wants to just eliminate the Constitution. I mean, it was just it was just crazy to me. I mean, can you imagine yeah. if former President Barack Obama had actually said, you know, <laughs> we I mean, can you I mean, really, can you imagine? I know. You, you, I know. you can't even do the what if game. I mean, it's too. I mean, it's just so laughing. I mean, you, I can't I, I, I try to get get this out. I mean, but can you I mean, just if President Barack Obama had suggested hmm. terminating our Constitution. Can you just imagine the uproar? I mean, it would have been a firestorm like we've never seen before. And remember the fear when Obama even wore a tan suit. I mean, we have to remember that. I mean, you know, (laughs) and they tried to make this big deal out of, you know, the jokes that he made. And so I I look, I'm the Democrat. You asked me the Democrat's point of view. I think we are going to celebrate this victory in Georgia. But starting today, we've got to get ready for... Trump America, as far as like having his supporters support him, or even if they don't support him, be ready for who the person they will actually go and support because we know that they're outraged. They're not happy about this red wave that we were told it was going to happen. It didn't happen. And so they're going to be even more fired up to come out in these uh, 2024 elections. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, there's just two things I want to, and I I know I'm not the Democrat, but. For, for Democrats, I'd look at two things, though, um, that are really important. One is holding current elected officials in what we call an off year, meaning 2023. There's no big elections coming up. Holding the elected officials responsible for the comments that Donald Trump makes. Do you agree with them? That should be a constant badgering of whether it's their state parties doing it or their local parties, I would just get anyone, any Republican on the record and get them to say, do you think Donald Trump was saying the Constitution should be suspended? Yes or no. And it's hard. They're, they're you know, slippery little suckers. But yeah. um, <laughs> but yeah. it's, it's, it's important. The other thing is Georgia. Every state needs to learn from Georgia. New York, they talked about a close race in New York with the governor's race, with Lee Zeldin, the Republican, coming within six points of of Governor Hochul. Now, in a race for attorney general, and she has her own issues right now, in 2018 to 2022, she went from getting 27% of the vote to eight. 
Like that, I mean, closing the gap between her candidates from her opponents. So she came in with eight and she didn't have a campaign and she ran against someone who didn't have bus fare. There was no campaign and it was an eight point race. It wasn't an eight point race because everyone thought Republican candidates were great. It was because of turnout. The turnout was lower in Brooklyn than it was uh, in Long Island. Like that's just you, the base, the base, the base. And to not have them fired up in 2022 is problematic for 2024. So there's this ongoing tension um, over Trump's control of the Republican Party and and the other place, one one of the place, important place we're seeing it play out is in several leadership battles, but the most important one is the Speaker of the House election, right? When Republicans take control of the House in January. So I just want to touch on this bef- briefly before we leave the topic, because uh, you know we've talked about um, House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy. Uh, last month, he won the Republican nomination for Speaker by getting 188 votes. Uh, when the Republican caucus met after the midterms, something like 31 people did not vote for him. Uh, and on Tuesday, Arizona Congressman Andy Biggs announced that he was going to mount a full challenge to McCarthy and run for speaker when the full House votes on January 3rd. So Biggs announced his candidacy in an op-ed for the conservative Daily Caller and listed McCarthy's disloyalty to Donald Trump as one of the reasons he's running for speaker. And the full House vote for Speaker requires a majority of votes to declare a winner. Now, this everybody votes for Speaker, right? Not just Republicans because they control it. Everybody votes. So if all 435 House members show up on January 3rd and vote, Kevin McCarthy has to get 218 votes. And since Republicans have such a narrow majority, he can only afford to lose four votes when the House votes. Now, if he can't count the 218 on the first ballot, they'll go multiple ballots until somebody wins a majority when uh, that hasn't happened in a century, but I just want to remind everybody, Andy, he, he, Kevin McCarthy did 31 people did not vote for Kevin McCarthy in the Republican caucus. All he has to lose is four votes in this, in the first round. So Susan, I, I wonder what you, first of all, what do you make of this like brewing leadership battle? And what does this continued fight over the speakership say to you about Trump's positioning within the party? Uh, I'm going to I'm going to take Trump out of it for a minute because okay. I I think he'll he'll come out against anyone who doesn't endorse him. I mean, Elise Stefanik, who's sure. in leadership, endorsed him for president right away. Uh, McCarthy hasn't maybe, you know, it would be if Trump gives a hard no to McCarthy, that that's where his influence comes to. But let me give you another point of view. For a long time, the Freedom Caucus and I'm putting it in quotes, air quotes, um, which is a, a, a good amount of them are, are pretty right wing and extreme, like Andy Biggs, Marjorie Taylor Greene, et cetera. They've been holding the speakers or the leaders' uh, feet to the fire. Why is that? Why are we only having a few loudmouths like Jim Jordan holding the speakers' feet to the fire? I can make an argument that there are 18 members of Congress or soon to be members of Congress in January, that won Biden districts. And they didn't do it because they, they, they put themselves with Donald Trump. They did it because they distanced themselves from Donald Trump. And they won in districts that, frankly, they really had no business in. Now, there's, you could give a lot of reasons, but if they want to get reelected, they are going to have to continue to look to do something. And this past Sunday, Congressman Clyburn, perhaps just being a bit of a troublemaker, said, ah, maybe there's a deal that Kevin can make on the other side. 
Maybe. Well, I'd like to take that a little further and say, why not? Why not make a deal? But it's the Democrats have to get something. And what should they get? Power sharing. It should, I mean, and don't tell me you can't do it because the Senate yeah. has Senate, done it. The Senate's been doing it, yeah. This is the ultimate deal to get, and if and maybe, I, I have to believe that Kevin McCarthy does not enjoy the position in which he sits, meaning he has to just lick Donald Trump's boots every single day. I don't think he particularly likes it. I think he does it because he wants power more. But if he can make that kind of deal and become speaker, it's it's a very interesting prospect. And maybe it's not exactly that power sharing agreement of committees, although I think it should be committees. Um, just split committees. Le- chairs will still be Republican, so they can control the agenda. And if there's ties, it goes to the whole f- the f- uh, floor for a vote. But what's so important to me, and you've heard me say this so many times, is governance. If you want to return to getting things done, we have to stop listening to the loudmouths who say, we will not compromise. Because they're not doing it because of morals. They're doing it because they're loudmouths and idiots. They just want the attention. They want to be contrary. But governance would mean one buy-in from a Democrat on a piece of legislation. Oh my gosh, could you imagine? Huge. So those 18 have a very strong voice. There are a couple others, by the way, from red states who have you know, been moderate on certain issues um, and, and could surprise us. But those 18 could be a very interesting uh, group to get together. Darren, let's talk about uh, the governor in your neighboring state, huh? Uh, the uh, as the as the as the will they won't they support Trump saga right continues. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has emerged as the likely alternative to Trump within the Republican Party. So DeSantis won re-election in Florida by nearly twenty points, and he's gearing up for a series of invite-only meetings with his donors beginning on Sunday. Last week, a new Marquette Law School poll found that DeSantis had a 10-point lead over Trump among Republican-identifying respondents. Now, look, it's important when you look at these polls to see who was asked and who was, uh, you know, who, what names did they actually put on the poll and who did they actually ask? Uh, so take all these with a grain of salt, because if it was just a DeSantis-Trump head-to-head, it's kind of useless. But uh, in the middle of the saga... The Atlantic published a piece by uh, by the wonderful Mark Leibovich, which, by the way, if you haven't read This Town, his book on Washington, D.C., it's fantastic, really fantastic. Uh, Leibovich writes about DeSantis and the, sub, uh, the subhead caught my eye. It said, people who haven't met him think he's a hot commodity. People who have met him aren't so sure. And the common narrative around DeSantis uh, and one his aides like to perpetuate is that he's Trump with a brain. Uh, but some people who've known DeSantis longer and better than the national figures aren't sure he could mount a serious challenge to Trump. Uh, Virginia Republican Barbara Comstock described DeSantis as standoffish. Uh, Max Stepanovich, uh, who's a Tallahassee lobbyist who left the GOP because of Trump, said that he'd rather, quote, have teeth pulled without anesthetic than be on a boat with Ron DeSantis. Uh, former, <laughs> I know, I know. Love former, that. For, I know. Former Republican congressman. I mean, I don't know where the boat came from, but mm. like, <laughs> but former Republican congressman uh, Carlos Cobello, who served with DeSantis in the House, said DeSantis would need to shed his robotic quality 
but that everything else checks the box, that he is smart and competent and committed to his ideology. He just has to humanize himself, which kind of sounds like another Florida governor who lost to Donald Trump. But anyway, uh, Leibovich notes that people who are sycophantic to Trump swear he possesses charm and charisma, but even people who are eager to vouch for him don't do the same. So uh, we, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the window shopping uh, going on at the RJC meeting, Susan, uh, in Las Vegas. And you you talked about how when you go window shopping, you try things on and if you uh, you know, if you like them, great, but you might just decide to stick with what's in your closet. Uh, so how important is the personality and the likability, uh, of a Trump alternative going to be, uh, for Republicans to consider them? How, how, how are you, what would you think of Mark's piece, by the way? And, and how do you think about this? Oh, I thought it was fantastic. I mean, Mark is just brilliant and I thought he captured things really well. I mean, a lot of people do go to the concept of, of, uh, DeSantis having a glass jaw. Can he take the punches? Um, I think his strategy has been not to engage. And he only go, takes on people, you know, who can't respond back like corporations. But the more I see him, I'm, I, I'm very curious. Like he has press conferences and only lets in Fox News. He never does an event besides being behind a podium. How is he? It's not so much is it can he be authentic? It's can he not can he be in a situation where you're not always in control? And as you know, being on the presidential campaign trail, you you don't get to always be in control. So I I I think that he is a control freak, which doesn't bother me and there are lots of people who are. Um but I think he's like a control freak on steroids and he will have a very hard time. Now, maybe that's wrong. I remember thinking the same thing about Trump being a germaphobe and he'll never shake hands and he did. So it, it is worth looking at. But I think the comparison to Trump is going to wear on people. I think people want to see the conservative candidate, but not a replica of Trump, even without the baggage. And it's interesting that DeSantis is now making his his kind of entree into taking on Trump is saying, I disagree with how the Trump administration, or he just says the previous administration, handled COVID and the lockdowns. I don't think I should have listened to it. And that's a that's his kind of swipe at Trump. And Trump hasn't responded yet, but to me, that's interesting that he's going he's willing to go he's there. He's going there. Yeah. So but I, let's see. Yeah. I think he's I think he's out there way too early, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. Theron, how are you thinking about this? Both about the piece and, and in particular, this, this like, will he, won't he, and the DeSantis sort of as the, as the, as the replacement, as the, as the heir apparent. And what does that do to the way Democrats think about the presidential? I thought the piece was really interesting and I thought it was well-written and, you know, we, we have to be reminded that Donald Trump was able to become the Republican nominee back in 2016 is because he didn't emerge too soon. You know, we always forget that Jeb Bush and others were supposed to be in line to be the Republican nominee. And Trump really tapped into something within the Republican Party. And he tapped into an emotion that ultimately led him to being the top vote getter. But he also went against the establishment. He, he criticized the Republican establishment. And so, boom, now you have Ron DeSantis, who we all remember narrowly defeated um, his Democratic opponent in, in, in Florida. 
and now has grown that that popularity in Florida and had a you know twenty percent victory blowout, right? Um, and so he, he he narrowly defeated Andrew Gillum, which many Democrats, including myself, were very optimistic about winning that race in two thousand eighteen. But you know he's been a direct beneficiary of this sort of cult of personality built around him. Um, and I think many Floridians, if you talk to them, people in Florida, they really are not able to really articulate to you a lot of what he actually has done to improve the lives of people who live in Florida. Um, but he spent an amount, a huge amount of time of, I believe, distracting them um, by demonizing trans people um, and pretending that our country doesn't have a problem with systemic racism. Uh, and But he's running on a platform that is really interesting because he obviously thinks that there's a faction within the Republican Party of people who are willing to go against Donald Trump. And he wants to be that alternative. He wants to be that person. And but the, but the thing is, is that he feels like maybe, you know, there are people who live in Florida um, who are, you know, feeling like he's now surpassed being a governor in a state that once was a key battleground state, but still is a battleground state, but it's not as much of a battleground state because Democrats, we have not won Florida since 2012. And Ron, I remember that because I was a Southern regional uh, director for the Obama campaign in 2012. But I think some of the voters in Florida are beginning to realize that the so-called anti-woke policies have actually done nothing to address the kitchen table issues in Florida. These are the people that I talk to on, on both sides of the aisles. And so you know, he's this whole would I have a beer with them test is still very impactful in American politics. Uh, and I think to Susan's point, like, you know, we haven't really seen him be able to create, you know, his creative natures, his ability to uh, you know, really be on the stump and retail politics. But I think that the thing is, is that he's he's emerging as sort of the anti or alternative to Trump. But I think it opens a window for another woman or man within the Republican Party to come along. And, you know, this thing is really interesting about politics. Things that are important today are probably not going to be as important a year from now, or even in, in this day and age with 24 media hours a, a week from now. Um, but I do think that, look, he's suffering from a lot of what politicians uh, suffer from. If you ask people back home, you know, these national stars, the feeling at home is always different than what the national public or international public feels about them. And so I just think that look, the article really points out some things about his leadership. Um, a lot of people had not heard of him before he ran for governor in 2018, but it's going to come down to how much money can he raise? Uh, how many people are willing to go against a proven track record in Republican primary politics and with Donald Trump? And we'll just have to really wait and see. Okay. Now that we have uh, covered a few of the biggest stories this week, um, there are there are more that we need to get to. Um, let's look at what we're watching above the radar, under the radar. Whether it's under the radar, it doesn't matter. Um, what are you keeping your eye on, Theron, right now? Oh, wow. It's two things. Um, one, uh, again, just kind of bringing it to, to Georgia, but also just this is something I think all Democrats are trying to figure out now. You know, how do we expand the party? Um, we saw a moderate Democrat, a black man in Georgia for U.S. Senate, expand the electric and win. And how can we emulate that? How can we replicate that in other 
uh, states. The second thing I'm paying very close attention to is um, really trying to get Georgia moved up on the uh, schedule as far as the primaries in 2024. This was a conversation that we had a few months before the election circuit started in Georgia uh, about sort of taking the temperature to see if Republicans and Democrats, because they will need to get legislative approval, legislative involvement to pull this off. But the fact that President Biden came out recently and said that he supports moving Georgia up um, in the uh, primary calendar for the president and the nominations, I think, is a really good sign. And I'm really interested to see how that's going to play out. You know, that calendar, just to add to it, you know, we saw South Carolina leapfrog up there, too, in the proposal. Mm -hmm. And I just like to highlight it was one of the states that Donald Trump only got 32 percent in um, because they were because uh, Rubio and Ted Cruz were still pretty viable. So if you only have three, it's not as easy sailing. And I think actually that would be great for the Republicans, even though they can't you know, they just won't do it because Biden liked it. I mean, it was Biden's idea. They will not consider it. It's actually a good play for Republicans to kind of get in on this. They don't have to agree with every state, but there's some things that would work out very well for them. So I normally don't bring uh, stories. Well, not all the time anyway, but I've got two today that I want to um, bring to you and put on the table. So for our plus subscribers recently, we had a long conversation about the Respect for Marriage Act that passed with 12 Republican senators, um, which repealed DOMA and it protects marriage equality. And we talked about how much public opinion has moved in such a relatively short time, and even how many Democrats opposed marriage equality, including Joe Biden, who uh, back in the 90s voted to restrict marriage to a man and a woman while he was in the Senate, and President Obama, who was elected holding that position until he evolved while in office. Well, Back in 2004, the RNC and George W. Bush campaign used ballot initiatives in key states, including my home state of Nevada, where I lived at the time, that would have outlawed same-sex marriages in those states. This was a strategic move to boost Republican turnout in that presidential election and widely credited to or blamed on, depending on your persuasion, uh, a guy named Ken Melman who was Bush's campaign manager, and following Bush's victory, he went on to become the chairman of the RNC. Well, fast forward to today, my friend Owen Loftus, who's been working on LGBT advocacy on the Republican side for some time now, uh, and he's previously been on the Roundup, uh, tipped me off about the quiet campaign that was being run behind the scenes to rally support for getting this Respect for Marriage Act done, and namely getting the Republicans to support it. The New York Times ran a piece on this yesterday by Annie Carney titled Prominent Gay Republicans Helped Smooth the Way for Marriage Bill. It's probably worth noting that this piece was pre-written ahead of the vote. Well, the effort was led by none other than one Ken Melman. So thank you, Ken. The other is a shout out to a brilliant, brilliant lecture um, part of the Wreath Lectures, which is an annual lecture series on the BBC radio that has been running since 1948. And this year, the theme of the lectures is the four freedoms uh, after the 1941 speech that FDR gave, uh, in which he outlines the four freedoms that he saw as fundamental to a democracy, namely freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. And the first of these lectures this year was given by uh, the award-winning Nigerian author Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. 
she has something like 16 honorary doctorates. She's, she's incredible. And in this marvelous lecture, she offers what I think is one of the best current articulations of freedom of speech as the bedrock of liberal societies and most importantly, the stakes of failing to meet our current moment with principle. She's a writer. And of course, in the speech, she touches on literature. Um, she says, literature is increasingly viewed through ideological rather than artistic lenses. Nothing demonstrates this better than the recent phenomenon of sensitivity readers in the world of publishing, people whose job it is to, clean, to cleanse unpublished manuscripts of potentially offensive words. This, in my mind, negates the very idea of literature, end quote. Uh, she also takes on and, and thoroughly rejects the, the phrase, the mantra that speech is violence uh, and even online trolling. Here's one other quote I want to read, and but everybody should go listen to this. We'll put a link in the show notes. Um, but here was, here was one piece that stood out. Quote, I want to make a case today for moral courage, for each of us to stand for freedom of speech, to refuse to participate in unjustified censorship, and to make much wider the boundaries of what can be said. We must start again to assume good faith. In public discourse today, the assumption of good faith is dead, and speech is by default interpreted in the most uncharitable way. Yes, some people are not of good faith, which I suppose is what that modern word troll means, but we cannot, because some people do not act in good faith, then decide that the principle of good faith is itself dead. It is instructive to be reminded of American President James Madison's words, some degree of abuse is inseparable from the proper use of everything. Anyway, it's an, it's an outstanding lecture, followed by a Q&A. I think everybody should go uh, take some time to listen to it. Um, okay, sorry, that was a little longer than I planned. Susan, what do you got today? <laughs> well, I have to follow that, Ron? Really? <laughs> Very good that was, for that me. That was impactful. Um, <laughs> Very impactful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm almost ready to take a pass. <laughs> We'll put that. We'll put that at the end. We'll put that at the no, end. No, it's good. And, it's it's all good. I'll just be you know this political hack that you have on and bring it back to politics. <laughs> Looking back um, yeah. at the week, I have to say, Herschel Walker, not claiming the election was rigged, taking responsibility for losing, was a very good thing. And except for the wacky one out in Arizona, we have seen that with many of the election deniers that ran for office and lost. And I, and I kind of put a pin, uh, you know, an exclamation because I do think of Tuesday's election as finally the end of the midterm elections. And if there was another, you know, if there wasn't a Trumpier guy who could have gone that way, um, it would have been Herschel Walker, and he didn't. I, I also think he did, could have been upset that Trump was raising money off of him, saying he was doing a fundraiser and getting like a nickel for every dollar raised. So <laughs> that could be it too. Just saying, you know. I mean, <laughs> but but I am I am happy that that people. It's normalcy. I'm not saying it's, yeah. it was a, it, it it was not like oh wow we should give credit. No one's going to get credit for it. But it, it gives us a little normalcy, and, I, and I'm kind of grateful for that. It is important to mark that because we've been we've had so much abnormalcy. It's really important to mark that that happened. It's it's kind of sad that we have to mark it, but you're right. Right. To take and I'm not going to give him credit for it. Yeah, I'm not going right, to say, "Well, totally. what a good guy." Yeah. He didn't. I'm just saying the act was a good thing for our elections. Looking totally forward, 
Yeah. The January 6th Select Committee. Everyone knows they're coming out with the report. Some people are wondering about what the criminal referrals will be, how Trump is going to, you know, it, are they going to refer Trump? Are they going to refer, you know, Mark Meadows? Who knows for criminal referrals? I actually really don't care because it's up to DOJ to actually do something about it. The referrals are not of interest to me. What's of interest to me is the over thousand interviews that they conducted that we did not see on television. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't see Kellyanne Conway, but she testified. Like I can't wait (laughs) for those interviews to be released. So I think it's going to be, um, I I believe everything has to be released by December 24th. How do you know how they're going to release them? Like in what format? I'm not sure. Is it going to be like a book like the 9-11 commission or? I I don't know the answer to that. It's a great question. Um, But I know I can't wait to read it because I think that's what every every, um, reporter that in town is going to be like tearing that up. But I'm I'm, I'm really curious to see what what comes out of that, especially the the thing about the fraud on the website with the donations that, you know, did he lie to the donors that it was going to a legal defense fund when in fact it was just going to, you know, his his hotels and other properties. So that's what I'm looking at. I'm looking for the smaller stories that I think will end up being very important in different ways. That's a good one. All I right, try. gang, before we flip over to Politicology Plus, uh, where we're going to discuss Times Person of the Year, Vladimir Zelensky. Where can everybody find you on the internet, Darren? You can find me on the internet on Twitter at Darren Johnson. And also my firm is ParamountConsults.com. You haven't jumped ship, the Twitter ship yet, huh? No, no. I mean, yeah, Good I got Instagram, you. Darren L. Johnson. <laughs> uh, I don't. I, I stay with it because you know what? I, I think it's a good source of information. Yeah, that's true. You got to know what's going on. Susan, where are you on the internet these days? I'm still on Twitter, but yeah, that's not saying much. For me to figure out how to get off Twitter would be a harder (laughs) thing than than anything else. So, um, (laughs) and who knows? Will it be here next week? (laughs) We don't know. We don't know. Um, We don't know. (laughs) But it's still Percy OS. Beautiful. And I'm, for the moment, still on Twitter at Ron Steslow. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, We'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.